0: Are a few people who have the perspective on the development of intensive care medicine that Professor Malcolm Fisher has. He was the Director of the ICU at the Royal North Shore Hospital for 24 years, publishing widely in a number of special interest areas including anaphylactic shock and end-of-life care. Malcolm was the Foundation Member and President of the Australia New Zealand Intensive Care Society and of the initial Australasian Faculty of Intensive Care Medicine. He was President of the World Federation of Societies of Intensive Care and Critical Care Medicine from 93 to 94, and in 2003 he was awarded the Order of Australia for services to national and international critical care and research into severe allergic reactions. Presently, Malcolm is the Ambassador for the Intensive Care Foundation, a charity dedicated to raising funds for critical care research in Australasia. Recently, it was my pleasure to catch up with Malcolm about his new role. I began by asking him where his journey in ICU started. I was
1: uh, an anaesthetic registrar who didn't like anaesthetics much in 1971, and we had a patient come into the unit with tetanus. And my boss, Graham Marshall, had done some work with tetanus with Morris Sando in Adelaide, at the Royal Adelaide Hospital, and gave me a uh, a, a thing they'd written on how to treat tetanus, a sort of guideline, I guess the first one I ever saw, and said, right, you don't have to give any anaesthetics, this guy will be a full-time job for a couple of weeks. So I went to work in the intensive care unit and from that day on virtually I never really wanted to work anywhere else. And I was very privileged at that time to become a junior member of a group of people with very bright eyes and bright ideas who thought that we needed a new specialty and a specialty that was based on acuity, on how sick people were rather than which organ or how old or a particular technique. And that began a very long process where we created a specialty virtually and a, a model that we call the Australian model, which I think has been shown to be uh, probably the best way to do intensive care in the world with dedicated specialists and dedicated staff.
0: Was that an easy process uh, at the time? What are your recollections of that that time?
1: We were very lucky, I think, in Australia, um, that we didn't have the turf wars that people had in, particularly in the United States, where, you know, you used to hear only surgeons come look after surgical patients, or in the UK, where the anaesthetists felt they had ownership of intensive care. Particularly interestingly enough, the anaesthetists who didn't work in intensive care. But um, the frustrating thing was that we wanted everything to happen now and you don't make changes like that and things that uh, we seem to just be repeatedly charging the windmill and gave up on, suddenly two or three years later the door would open. Um, For example, having fees for intensive care. Uh, That was an extraordinarily difficult process, and shortly after we challenged the differential uh, registration and payment for people coming from the College of Physicians and the College of Anesthetists, we were given daily fees, which, while we're never going to make anyone rich, they were certainly very much better than anything we'd had before.
0: You're in a unique position, I guess, to, to be able to oversee the, the progress of our specialty thus far. It's obviously still a fairly new specialty. How have you seen it develop over the course of your career?
1: Well, I think it, it, you know, Australia is quite unique in that if you look at the, the mortality figures that come from the data that's collected by units, we don't have very much difference between intensive care units in the country and, and the, the royals. And uh, I think this is because we have effective networks and effective transport systems, and I think that's quite unique in Australia. Um, and it does occur in New Zealand, but the distances are smaller. So I think that's been a really important development. But all the other things that we had to have, we had to have a society like ANZICS and in the we needed a college we needed uh, to be the people that government recognised were the people you should talk to about intensive care rather than physicians and anaesthetists and surgeons. And we needed, of course, to win the, the respect and the endorsement of our colleagues, the people who provided the patients that came to the unit. And all of that was won was by hard work, basically, and by, uh, by having a... Uh, by developing training programs, by talking to each other, by not really being in competition. The other thing that I think we needed to give us credibility and because it has a whole lot of other benefits was a research focus and that's probably that with the college have been the last two things to come along Um, and initially... Uh, research wasn't our strength clinical medicine was our strength but we were troubled by studies from overseas where the uh, the treatment group would have outcomes that were very much worse than or were not as good a, as a random selection across Australian intensive care units the, the great example was of course the ARDSnet study where they showed doing clever things with the ventilation reduced their outcomes in ARDS but the outcomes were not as good as those that Andrew Burston showed in all comers in the three units. So there's a need to do our own research, I think, to look at uh, what's valid and what's not in our circumstances and in our units where there are specialists on the floor uh, and it's recognised that they will be largely responsible for the care of
0: the patients. There's obviously an enormous amount that you've contributed over the the years to uh, the growth of our specialty. Are there things that you look back on with particular pride?
1: I think the uh, you know I remember someone said once to Humphrey that Sir Humphrey Davy, the great British scientist, what was your greatest contribution to science? And he said Michael Faraday, and the thing I look back on with most prior to the teams I've been part of, the teams I've been the leader of, but the Michael Faradays, the people that our training programs have produced all over the world who are now leaders in the specialty of intensive care.
0: Where do you see the future of intensive care? For those of us uh, starting out and those listening who are about to begin their careers as intensivists, what do you see as the future of intensive care?
1: I think. Problem that faces intensive care is how to be fair and rational and appropriate in the face of an ageing population and increasing survival of people with chronic diseases and that there is a major need to uh, try and um, use intensive care appropriately. Uh, intensive tend to blame outside people who send in the patients and then sit around and bitch over coffee about how this was an appropriate thing, this patient should never have had an operation, uh, we didn't have proper informed consent, but this is something there's an urgent need to address and it's being addressed at a statewide level and it's being addressed nationally and there have been some... Uh, some, uh, leaps forward, like Bill Sylvester's, uh, Respect for Choice study, which is showing people able to die at home, and if people talk about this and deal with it adequately, then it becomes better for, for staff, for patients, and for families. But to make these changes is difficult, and I think we've probably got to think in, in longer terms than we uh, have in the past, and, try and get uh, a younger generation of people who may be um, a bit more aware of the limitations of modern medicine than some of us old guys are.
0: In practical terms, how do you see that happening? What are the things that you would like to see done? I think. Well, the first
1: thing is I think we have to... And I think there's pretty good data for this and it's supported by the the Respect for Choice of Study, and that is that we have to teach people... A, to recognise when somebody is dying or when the burdens of care are going to outweigh the benefits of the care and we have to train them how to have the conversations about that with people just as we would train them to put in an intra balloon or a central line. It's just as important... And they're having, you know, been brought up in an era where people actually criticised us for trying to talk to families, um, you know, we did everything wrong. And I think there's no need for people to make the mistakes that were made in the past.
0: You've um, you've written of a, a fairly pivotal moment. At least that's the way you described it in your career a lecture by um, Professor Joseph Civetta. How did that um, that lecture impact upon you?
1: I used to run a meeting in the early days of intensive care where we would get speakers to talk about things like that we hadn't talked about enough. And I invited I actually invited Joe's wife, Judy, to come and talk about a whole lot of radical ways of rostering nurses that she'd spoken about. And Joe wanted to come too. And I said, Well, we should talk about anything wanted to talk about dying and I said, Well, that was probably a good thing because Intensivists uh, in the United States had much greater experience with that than we did in uh, Australia. And he thought about that for a while and then said, Well, you know, I, I just heard you talk about renal failure. What percentage of your patients get that? And I said, 1%. And he said, What percentage of your patients die? And I said, 9% in the unit another 6% in the wards. And he said, Well, shouldn't you know something about dying? And he gave a talk at the shore inn. Um, in uh, 1982, I think it was, and it's probably the only talk I've ever been to that virtually changed the specialty and got us to go down the path of listening to people to see patients, families and staff as being, being on the same team with the same goals and respecting people's views and listening to them and not assuming that everyone needed to have the last moments of life run out of them with machines and drugs. So it, it had a very major impact on the people who were there, and a lot of them set out to... Uh, to practice uh, good palliative care in the intensive care setting. Very few of us actually had access to palliative care specialists or helpers at the time and it was a self-learning process but I think the people who went down that path early not only made their intensive care units better units and better places to work but they probably actually became better people and have better relationships with each other. It was a... It, it was a really important part of of my development and development of the unit in which I worked.
0: Malcolm, you've continued to write on this area and recently wrote an article on the prognostication in intensive care and the difficulties around this. What are the things that you see as the difficulties around prognostication and the way we deal with those in intensive care?
1: There are several. The first thing is that people don't know and don't think about it. Um, There is, for example, for particular diseases, some very good data uh, that's accessible on websites from the British to tell you what the prognosis is, for example, in people with chronic airways disease or no white cells, although, again, they're not Australian data. I think that we've got to realise that there is always uncertainty in prognosis, which and it's information that the doctors tend to own and share with the other people participating in the decision-making process, and there is also uncertainty about what a patient would want even if they can participate in the conversation, if the blowtorch is on their belly, uh, you may not get what they would want if they could be rational and exclude the suffering and uncertainty. Uh, you also have uncertainty when you a patient, for example, says, I want to die, and they may be saying my burden is too heavy, you're not treating me very well, or they may be saying my time has come. So we need to acquire the skills to... Uh, deal with this. And in that paper, we advocated the concept of practical certainty, which is to acknowledge that, that nothing is 100%, but we are as certain as we can be that the most likely outcome in this pathway which we're on at the moment would not be acceptable to the patient. And, you know, we can't... Uh, ask intensive care medicines full of variables. It's not like trigonometry where you know Pythagoras' theorem is always right. Uh, there will always be uncertainty and that uncertainty we have to learn to manage.
0: My impression of your argument in that paper was not only were we faced with the uncertainty but that we probably don't deal with that very well as clinicians. How do you see we can improve that?
1: I, I just think it's, it's about Honesty, but first of all, that is is about, uh, before an outcome or a prognosis is presented to uh, a patient or a family, we need to do the two things that can help make it accurate. And one is more heads and one is more time, uh, to involve other people in the decision making, um, particularly, you know, whether unusual diseases or, um, Time, A, for the people to see what's happening, B, to see if the patient uh, can improve, and C, to actually gather the information, which is not always uh, uh, happens very quickly. The other thing in in which uh, I became very troubled at the end of my career was the uncertainty about uh, guidelines and scientific papers and knowing which ones you should believe and which ones you shouldn't. And, and we were very lucky in our unit. We were able to employ an expert on this who taught us how to look and, and also helped us sort through the chaff to try and deal with what was realistic. But I almost think nowadays you, you, uh, you need other people, uh, either through journals or through the internet or through your staff, to assess medical information for you.
0: There appears to be a a never-ending conflict between the desire not to do harm to the patient by putting them through unnecessary suffering versus that conflict that you mentioned of the uncertainty of their outcome. What was your approach to this problem?
1: You've got to go right back to Aristotle and do what you believe a good person would do: uh, value human life, value other people's values, and try and put the uh, the story together um, with the help of your colleagues, so you can work with the family and the patient if the patient is participating. As a team, so you're on the same team and you are trying to do the very best for the star of the show who's the patient.
0: Malcolm, you've recently taken on a role as a a board member of the Intensive Care Foundation. I was wondering if you could tell me about your role with them. Mm.
1: Uh, the Intensive Care Foundation was, again, being part of the group of people who were trying to make this a specialty, I believe we had to have a research basis in the respect of our colleagues for the research we undertook. And it was very difficult because everyone was extraordinarily busy and it was one of the sort of things I mentioned, but it was a thing we wanted to happen now but didn't happen till very much later with a, a new generation, almost the Maybergs and... Uh, Coopers and Finters and people such as that. Um, but there were two aspects to that. One was, there were several aspects. Um, one was to, you know, establish a research credibility. Two was to actually find out the answers to things, particularly things in Australia. But I believe there was a spin off. Um, And that spin-off was that when we did things like the SAFE study, we left behind a research culture and we left behind often some infrastructure of people in the units, part of the local team who got involved in the research. And what we found in our own unit was that if we had questions to address, like, hey we're, uh, we our infection rate's a bit too high, or something like that, but looking at it as though we were writing a grant um, gave us. Better opportunity of finding an answer and something that we would, could apply to solve the problem, and I think this is, is the real thing. Not, you know, now research for the for the Royals and the University Hospitals costs a lot. Big studies, um, they require great expertise. But I think that the, the niche of the Intensive Care Foundation, which initially started off some of these big studies is to provide uh, material so that that the unit at Tamworth and the unit at, uh, at Wollongong, uh, the other units, that the enthusiasm of bright-eyed people can be supported and they can be given resources that will enable them to develop a, a research culture.
0: So what is the role of the ICF now, do you feel? Well,
1: the role of the ICF is—it is, uh, exists only for one thing, really, and that is, well, two things: to to spread the word about intensive care because people still don't know what it is, and to uh, to raise money to provide uh, research. Now, its goal, its target, is 250,000 a year. That that'll only, you know, uh, fund a tenth of a a big study, but can fund a lot of little studies if we can keep raising the money to support that initiative in the face of a global financial crisis and small charities such as the Intensive Care Foundation being put in a situation where it's much harder for them to raise the money.
0: Malcolm, what is in the trophy room of the ICF? What have some of the success stories been?
1: Oh dear um, well they're new, humorous a lot of the things that, that started off have been supported like the like DECRA uh, like um, SAFE uh, things like that it was very important that there was the foundation there was the small trials group and these things were all working together to get uh, the money together to uh, to to seek the, the what was it six million I think the safe study cost. Um, what you need is uh, is, is the kickstart to do the basic stuff to show that it can be done to do the preliminary study, and that I think is the niche of the foundation and uh a lot of the as I say, the big successes that have really put Australia on the map as a research place have uh have come from there. I think really the exciting stuff that we're doing now is is stuff funding uh, uh looking at early rehabilitation at trying to stop the lengthy period of recovery once people get out of intensive care um, that's one of the the sources of funding which is uh uh, flat, which you know I think is very valuable they're looking at uh, the use of ECMO after the major experience we got a few years ago from that um, and they're doing very basic stuff, getting ready to make the serious and definitive study of uh, the in the, you know the gut uh, clearing out the bugs in the gut to try and reduce the incidence of infection, which seems on paper to work, but no-one in Australia uses it uh, for reasons that aren't entirely certain.
0: I guess there may be people out there who were not aware of the Intensive Care Foundation or at least how important it is to to the development of research in, in Australasia. If people are interested in making a donation, is there a way that they can do so?
1: Yeah, I think. But all you need to do is—is is we haven't quite got the the new way of doing this going yet, which is you you uh, <laughs> you do it through Twitter or or Facebook or things that I don't really understand all that well. But the simple thing to do is to go to the internet and. Uh, and Google Intensive Care Foundation Australia and that will take you to the website and there's some interesting stories and and you can learn all about uh, what we have funded and the way to make a donation is through that.
0: I'm aware there's a foundation in the UK as well. Are there other similar um, entities set up in other countries?
1: Our one is an Australia and New Zealand one, but for taxation reasons and everything, the the funding's a little separate. The Intensive Care Society in the UK has one that's actually modelled on ours. Um, When I last spoke to them about it, they were having some of the same difficulties we were, but uh yes there is one. Um I'm sure that uh the European society has something they've they've been doing a lot of really good work, um, publicising intensive care and you know, giving out to the people what it's all about and hopefully uh the dollars might follow that. The uh Americans of course they like to have their intensive care week and other thing, but I don't know how their charitable funding is going. They're, they're, they're quite competitive against one another, the uh, Americans, and that might hinder them a little.
0: If anyone is listening out there who is interested in contributing to their local intensive care foundation, uh, see your local uh, society webpage for further details. Malcolm Fisher, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you very much. If you enjoyed today's podcast, why not check out our websites, Critique and Crit Nurse? Our websites are leading providers of online critical care education and include podcasts, journal clubs, online presentations, modules, and much much more. You can also join our free blog to help you stay up to date. Our websites are found at www www.crit-iq.com and www.crit-nurse.com. You can follow us on Facebook and Twitter or visit us at the iTunes Store. While you're there, check out our data interpretation and CT interpretation apps. Critique, making critical care education easier.